Amy Nozuku Matatil is the author of New York Times bestselling illustrated collection of nature essays and Kirkus Prize finalists, World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments, which was chosen as Barnes & Noble's Book of the Year. Her writing appears twice in the Best American Poetry series, The New York Times Magazine, ESPN, Plo Shares, American Poetry Review, and Tin House. Amy Nozuku Matatil, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Hi, thank you so much. So we've been, we're big fans of your work, uh, both your nonfiction memoir, hybrid nature writing and your poetry. And just for those who, who haven't um, heard you read, you've selected a piece uh, for us. I have, I have. And so this is um, a selection from my chapter on my favorite whale, which is the narwhal. And it opens, I'm just going to read a section of it, and it opens um, how I first got to kind of thinking about narwhals when I lived in Kansas, of all places, um, which is, of course, landlocked right here in the center of the country. Um, and here's, here's just a little part of it. Narwhals are found mainly in the Arctic Ocean, but occasionally a small pod of them wanders into a Canadian fjord. The word narwhal comes from the Old Norse word nar, which means like a corpse, due to the distinctive mottled skin that looks like the spotted skin color of drowned sailors. Now, narwhals don't have a dorsal fin, and they have vertebrae in their neck that allow them to do a whale of a double take. The only other whales that share these unique traits are beluga. Narwhals eat cuttlefish, cod, and armhook squid. Nothing too disturbing, right? But it's the way they eat that could be alarming. A narwhal will swim up to its food, very stealthy-like, slow and steady, opening its mouth and inhaling like the world's scariest vacuum. And then in one giant and powerful gulp, it'll swallow the unsuspecting animal whole. Did I mention narwhals like to swim upside down? Can you imagine seeing a 3,000 pound narwhal sidling up to you upside down and slowly starting to open its mouth? Just who are these toothy creatures predators? Orcas and the occasional polar bear sometimes hunt baby narwhals. And when orcas go after an entire pod, the narwhals just dive, dive, dive. They can survive at almost 5,000 feet below sea level. And yet, narwhals are classified as almost threatened because humans hunt them for their teeth and their valuable fat supply. One afternoon in Kansas, my sister and I were riding the school bus back to the doctor's quarters. As we neared home, I saw my mom in our driveway unpacking groceries from the car. A chunky blonde boy on the bus asked if my mom was Chinese. And when I said no, she was actually Filipino. He flipped his eyelids inside out. I cringed and I groaned. I could still picture the greasy, dark, who knows what jammed under his fingernails. I can still see his belly hanging over his Wrangler jeans as he chortled at his own joke. And then, as if flipping his eyelids wasn't enough, 
He tugged at the skin at the corner of his eyes and pulled it to his ears. I bet she's Chinese. Her eyes don't even look like yours. Ice. Snow. The white plastic of the milk jugs as she was carrying in each hand as she smiled at the bus, scanning the faces at all those staring kids for her own. I saw my mother there and I wanted to dive deep, deep, deep into the darkest of seas so no orcas could find us. I had no sword and worse, no sharp tongue with which to sass this boy back. Instead, I just stared straight ahead, gathered up my books and left without saying goodbye to poor Mr. Johnson, the kindly bus driver. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's it's very interesting. And I think that that's why in so many people have been, uh, you know, moved by, well, of your poetry, of course, but World of Wonders and Praise of uh, fireflies, whales, sharks, and others' astonishments because of the combination of things and emotions and knowledge about the natural world. So you're learning all these things. And then you have this doubling over metaphor. So just even there, you know, in much of your childhood, I think, you know, right now you're, you're in Mississippi, you're talking about being in Kansas. For much of your life, you've been swimming in waters where I don't know where you were not recognized as one of the natural habitat, one of the, uh, you know, part. So. No, no, I was just going to say that you nailed it. That's exactly it. Thank you. And, and so that's, and so it's an interesting, an interesting classifying and learning about the natural world. I also really appreciated um, there's an essay and I should say essay, when people think about essays, they think about them as being long, but this is quite addictive reading as well. Like there's short passages where you learn a lot and you will get moved at the same time. And there's a passage about um, when you drew at Peacock and uh, I also like there's so many of that and uh, so many of those yeah maybe you could talk about that as well it's just it's fascinating for me sure yeah thank you so much Mia that's um you know it's all kind of been slightly overwhelming you know because uh you know my friends know this too the writing of this was so difficult for me because I think as a poet I always had that veil of well, this isn't me. Even if I wrote about some actual experiences, I always had the veil of the speaker of my poems, you know, that kind of thing. Writing nonfiction, my contract with the reader is that, for me, this is me. There is no, you know, I wanted to be as truthful and just remember as carefully as I could um, to remember actual events that happened. So there was nothing to hide behind. I couldn't say, oh, well, this happened to a girl that was like me. <laughs> no, this is me. So there was a lot of vulnerability and nervousness, I guess. Um, and also, you know, just maybe wondering like, who's gonna care about a, um, a little Asian American girl who grew up in Kansas, you know, and Arizona and Iowa and Chicago. Um, who's kind of really just a big nerd who loves this planet and loves its inhabitants, you know. There was a lot of people um, who said, no, they passed on this a lot, you know, because they're like, there's just nothing. We haven't seen anything like this. And so in some ways, that was the best thing because it kind of took that pressure off because I kept thinking, well, no one's going to read this. So I'm just going to write about the things that I love and things that I remember about my family's resilience um, and joy and astonishment. 
so that kind of helped. I think if, if, if I had a lot of people saying like, oh, this celebrated naturalist is writing a book of, of nature, you know, and when is this coming out? I think I would have been, uh, I would have had major, major writer's block after all, you know, but once I kind of got past, well, no one's going to read this and I'm just going to simply write what I love. It became whatever hesitation I had in the beginning was just vanished because then I just, it was just a celebration. It was so fun to get to the desk every day and just be like, I'm going to write about a vampire squid. I have the best afternoon possible. You know, I get to nerd out a little bit uh, and then recollect moments um, of my childhood, my, my relatively happy childhood, you know, um, as well. So it was uh, unlike any other writing experience I've ever had for sure. Um, then I got to be freer and just write what I loved without worrying about any pressures from publishing or anything like that. I just thought, well, my kids are going to read this. My husband will read it. I'm good. <laughs> you know. And I wanted it to be just a testament of what I loved um, on this planet for my kids. So I think that really helped free me a little bit um, into just not worrying about any background noise and just being focused on um, being as true if it feels true to you, it's because I was trying to be as true as I could be to my kids. Um, and that's the, the biggest compliment I can give to the reader, I think, is that I wanted to, to be as truthful and as honest and as vulnerable as I could um, on the page for you. And it really does come across. And the fact that you could be writing to your family, to your young children, even, and uh, it's accessible to all, and yet it does include a lot of information that even you know, uh, you know, biologists or naturalists um, might might not know or might enjoy being reminded of or through your perspective. So it has that artist's eye. And it's it, informative, and I love the fact that you said when you felt free. I isn't it so often the case like we we burden ourselves with all these limitations or anxieties. We think oh people are judging us. People are going, and it's like when you're free, you make the best art. Like the way children are free. Yeah. There's that unlocking moment. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. what for you, like when did you realize or give yourself permission to think of yourself as a poet as opposed to someone who simply appreciated the beauty and wonder of the natural world? Mm, that's such a nice question. You know, um, I think, I mean, it was, it was late uh, in, in compared to some of my friends and cohort a little bit. I mean, I didn't really turn to and embrace writing fully until late in my college career. Um, you know, I had been telling my parents since I was four, you know, they have it on, on, on video that I wanted to be a doctor just like my mom, you know, um, kind of the Asian American stereotype here. And I didn't really know any other way to be except it be in the medical field, but I do know that I loved reading. I loved kind of just, I wouldn't call them poems, but I would try to, I was making metaphors. I was making scraps of metaphors. I was playing with sound on the page, but I would never show anybody. I mean, it would just be hidden away in a diary or a journal or lamenting a, a, a crush that didn't notice me or something like that. Um, so it really wasn't until college that 
I even knew that that was a possibility that you could be alive, you could be a brown woman and write poetry. I just simply was never exposed to any living writers um, at the time. So it's a little bit late, but I'm so heartened by so many high school. Now I go around, uh, well, in pre-pandemic times, I go around and visit high schools all over the country and the world. Uh, and I'm so thrilled and grateful to teachers who are bringing in living writers um, and sharing living writers work. The classics are important for sure. And I'm grateful for that. But I think of what I could have gained by knowing that there was a Naomi Shihab Nye, you know, writing when I was maybe 15 or something like that. I would have loved that. Um, so I'm, I'm so heartened. I didn't have that experience um, uh, in my high school, but I'm so heartened to see how much uh, the teaching of literature and living writers has changed over the years. I think it's really interesting that you brought up the um, struggles of not seeing yourself represented in, uh, you know, growing up in a marginalized identity. And I wanted to ask how the intersections of being from um, you know, a non-Western identity, a marginalized community who usually have really strong collection, uh, connections to land, to nature, um, and to parts of the earth. How did that kind of help you with um, not being able to see yourself in, um, you know, pop culture or education? Did you find those connections um, through nature instead because it was lacking? in those parts of your life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think it was conscious, conscious at all, but your question is so perceptive. And it's like, have you been talking to my childhood friends or something? You know, I mean, that's just it. I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up, I never saw anybody that looked like me in movies, TV, MTV. I watched MTV all the time. I was like hungry to see like even a background dancer <laughs> that looked like me. And you know what that I didn't have the vocabulary for it you know um but what that told me is subliminally um this is not a place for you um these books you know the books that you love to read there's no place for you here um you should be focusing on chemistry or being a doctor or trying to figure out math a little bit more and I'm terrible at math so that made me feel even worse you know all the Asian American stereotypes that you'd see if, if we, I even saw one was like someone was good in math or computers, which I was not. So that doubly made me feel misplaced or like, what is my, when my strengths was reading and writing and you don't even, you don't see that at all, or you don't even see, just forget about any academics. I didn't even see an Asian American have a crush on somebody or smile. And so when you go your whole childhood and you don't see an Asian American on screen smiling, I mean, holy Toledo. I mean, my students now are so, my, my kids can't even imagine that. They grew up with Dora the Explorer. They, even though the cartoons are um, vibrant and diverse. Uh, so it, it is just kind of mind boggling. So instead of, I guess, feeling sad or sorry for myself, um, I guess I just kind of, I, ne I, I never set out to do it like today. I will, I will write about my identity, 
but it's just always been there for my first books, for my first poems that I was submitting in, in class workshops. I did not see myself in books, but I wanted to showcase a moment of um, making lumpia with my mother or planting um, flowers with her, you know, uh, that kind of thing, or sharing fruit with my dad. And, you know, um, these kinds of demonstrations of love that I did not see in books, but they were so palpable and so um, real to me. Uh, I just wanted to make that happen in my books. And, you know, and also I was a voracious reader. So it's not like, oh, I had limited reading and maybe I didn't see this or that. My library simply did not stock this, you know. Um, I was not, I did not have these books or collections or poems in my class syllabi. So my, my teachers weren't teaching it. It wasn't in the libraries. Um, and I just wanted to, um, I'm by no means the first, for sure, not the first, but it just kind of, to go back to your original question, I think something happened in 2016. I mean, I can pinpoint it. I can remember the exact moment. Something happened in 2016 where I just kind of, <laughs> as the kids say, snapped, you know, um, where there was a lot of just hateful news going around with um, American politics. And I didn't know how to answer a lot of my kids' questions then. They were about like five and eight at the time. Uh, and I'm sure I was not as eloquent as I could be, but one thing I know I could do is to tell them things that I loved about this planet or things that I loved in other people. Um, because all they, all they saw or heard about was just this weird ugliness, school shootings. Um, you know, we had leaders who were saying, build that wall to, you know, to anybody who looked different, not just one group of people, but anybody who looked different than than them. And so I remember kind of the night I shut myself up in my office after the kids went to bed and just started writing about plants and animals that I loved from my childhood. And some recollections were sad, you know, like the peacock story, um, you know, uh, remembering some kind of weird microaggressions from childhood. But mostly I wanted it to be a record of the things that I love on this planet. And so that was for me, that was kind of my response to not seeing myself um, in the nature books that I loved. And, and I wanted to show that, hey, there's a place for, there's room at the table for people, especially with nature writing and writing about the environment. Um, this was not a new thing for Asian Americans. My dad is from Kerala and he likes to say, we were green before it was cool to be green. You know, I mean, we've been recycling prior to 1990, you know, uh, before Earth Day, there was, it, that's just how people, how my relatives live. They're very conscious of saving um, resources and recycling and, and things like that. You know, I remember using a reusable water bottle in the 80s was considered weird or almost maybe even gross um, and to some people. Um, and now it's like, you, you go to a kid's soccer practice to see water, reusable water bottles all the time, you know? Um, my kids were doing that earlier. So it's like, why was that not represented? My parents were doing that earlier. So why was that not represented? You know, why was their master gardeners? Why, where are the stories of, of Asian Americans being outside? You know, that kind of thing. Um, 
anyway, it's a big, a big answer to your question, but I love it so much because I clearly have lots to say about it, but it is, it's just a matter of like where, I, I turn this back to publishers and to librarians and teachers to say, why were you only teaching straight white representations of the outdoors when uh, brown folks have been kind of leading the way um, in many cases uh, in, in their relationship, in their uh, everyday lives to the outdoors. That was not never considered separate. It's not indoors and outdoors. It was just considered that's life to us, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that, that yeah, there's uh, in certain cultures, certainly there's less of a separation between the natural world. It's just like our world. I feel that we can all get behind you know, nature and how that's important. And I should say that also, uh, because there is this metaphor which we read about uh, the harmony and kinship and identity of this kind of sense of belonging that creatures in the natural world, I'm even, even as they're, you know, there's a food chain and, and even all this, but there's, there's a real sense of how they each, each little link from the, you know, the plankton to, the whales, you know, as you talk about it, they they know that their order and their respect for that, and it is certainly something we can learn a lot from. And uh, I think we're we're opening our eyes to it now. What were some of the things? Because I really sense that you indulged uh, your curiosity, which I know is important for you. <laughs> I, I believe this too. We have to nurture our, our curiosity and sense of like amazement and wonder about the world. Uh, but what are some of the things that you were just enjoyed learning about in the process of the research? Um, yeah, you know, I think it's funny. I don't, <laughs> my answer to this uh, question, I always have to couch a little bit because I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's the truth is that um, I didn't actually have to research too much because I've been basically kind of reading all my life or observing these animals in, in many cases since I can remember, you know, um, and or reading about them, you know, when my parents would take me to the library, they'd put me in the kids section, but I'd scurry over to the science um, and nature section. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I definitely checked on things. I wanted to make sure I had measurements correct and things like that. But um, a lot of the, I guess I, a lot of the surprise came in not with the animals and plants, but in what I remembered or how I connected in different ways to plants and animals that I encountered maybe even as a kid. Now um, as, a, as a wife or as a mother, things hit me in a different way, you know. Um, so for example, you know, um, uh, Bird watching, you know, was always just a, this fun kind of quiet adventure. Um, when I'd go bird watching with my dad, we almost almost didn't ever talk. It was just very quiet, just very bare minimum. And then I I write about a very um, loud bird watching experience with my with my then young kids who had a million questions that I that I basically was kind of transcribing as we were going along, and so that surprised me um, in, in different ways, how animals and plants, even though I've been kind of uh, obsessed with them all my life, how they hit me at different parts of my life too. Um, how the corpse flower was different 
for me when I was um, single and living alone and how it resonates with me now um, when I can take my children to see it. You know, the corpse flower was a, a, a plant that I used to almost kind of try to trick dates into seeing if they cared or were interested in the corpse flower. There might be a possibility for a second date if they did not show any interest in the corpse flower. I was like, bye, <laughs> you know, like you, we don't have a future really, you know? So it's, it's, that's where kind of the surprises and the learnings came for me. And also just subjects that I didn't want to ever talk about in my writing before, how I had, how I, I was surprised at how necessary and how unavoidable they seem to me now, kind of more than ever, you know, talk, you know, I, I don't think I would have written that Peacock essay about a white teacher making me feel embarrassed for wanting to celebrate um, just an animal that she deemed too exotic or too um, un-American, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think I would have even tackled that, those feelings of feeling stared at as a little kid, if not for maybe some of the political things that have been happening. I want, I think you're absolutely perceptive, Mia, in, in saying that part of what I chose to include, because I had a list of 200 <laughs> plants and animals, and I narrowed it down to about 30. Wh how I narrowed that down is what I wanted to celebrate and what I wanted to cheer for um, and kind of say, I'm here and I'm not going to apologize anymore, just to be breathing, you know, and a way to kind of desensitize to, to make an Asian American's presence not so unfamiliar anymore you know I'm not so exotic I think there's a lot at stake when you don't see a certain race or have conversations with someone of a different religion or a different sexuality or a different ability physical ability um, you start and then when you all of a sudden you do have an encounter with that person they seem so different and weird like uh, it should not be weird to see a brown person in the outdoors it should not be weird to see a brown person gardening and yet for much of this country it, it still is you know and, and what we see um, violence as a direct result of that we see the the most recent kind of horrible events that happened in Atlanta with the um, Asian American killings that were there um, and the kind of the terrorism that has been happening this past year um, with uh, the weird violent rhetoric about the coronavirus and Asian Americans. Um, if you don't get to kind of know other people outside your own little box, I think it's easy to want to distrust them or make a violence on them. But my hope with this book is that if we can find tenderness towards animals and plants that we're not familiar with, maybe that can be extended to humans too. Maybe you've never had encounters with Asian Americans before. Maybe you could feel a little bit of tenderness or a little bit of connection with me, with other Asian Americans in the future, with other people that are different sexualities or different abilities, and that could just be expanded. I just want this to be a more tender world. And I didn't know how else to do it except to write about the things that I loved. I'm Gabriela Garcia Stolfi, a student at American University majoring in communications and minoring in international relations.
Here at The Creative Process, I'm the Social Justice and Community Initiatives podcaster. It's quite amazing to see the connections between ourselves and nature. When we open our eyes to these living links, it feels like we're coming back home. Similar to Amy, when I felt alone in my childhood, I subconsciously turned to nature. I remember in our backyard, we had this huge Rockefeller Center-esque pine tree that sat in the corner of our yard. Whenever I played hide-and-seek with my siblings, I'd always run to the tree, almost as if it was calling me to it. Its trunk was just big enough to hide my whole body as my brother wandered around our yard looking for me. Other times, I'd just marvel at its size, a million questions running through my mind. What did the land look like when you were a sapling? How long did it take you to get this big? And so on. In times of hardship, I'd enjoy a seat at its roots that were almost intentionally formed to hold my child self. Something about it was so comforting, and I still get emotional thinking about my lovely pine tree, especially since my parents had it cut it down four years ago. Nowadays, I live in Cathedral Heights of Washington, DC, far away from my beautiful, lush backyard in the Garden State. Though, I still make sure to find pockets of astonishing nature, or rather, they find me. The trees that sway on the sidewalk on my way to catch the bus always catch my attention. If I listen hard enough, it feels like they're saying something to me. And I know what you're thinking. There's no way this girl thinks trees are talking to her. Well, I don't know what to tell you. It's just what I hear. I don't know what they're saying, but I understand. Kind of like when your cat looks at you a certain way, and I just love to listen to them. These are my pockets of home. Something is also just mind-boggling about how intrinsic it is to turn to nature for comfort, support, and love. We have been conditioned to perceive nature as something outside ourselves, when we are actually extensions of it, reaching out to each other through our root-like hands to create a giant network of life. It's work like Amy's that helps us remember our place in the world, the ancient ties that bind us together. There's also something so mystifying and familiar when we hear people talk about animals and their instinctual habits. How do sea turtles know where to swim home to? How do monarch butterflies fly across a whole continent without a GPS? Part of me believes that when you take away all the trappings of modern life, maybe then we could really tune into the earth and what it's telling us. Maybe then we could tap into our collective memory. Of course, indigenous and many other marginalized communities have followed this mindset for hundreds and hundreds of years. When we turn to face the threats and dangers of climate change, indigenous communities have been seeing the effects well before any Twitter threads or UN General Assemblies. Like Amy herself discusses, her family recycled way before it was considered to be trendy or socially acceptable, and many other people from marginalized identities can say the same. The more we open ourselves up to the ties we hold to nature, the stronger our fight is against climate change, against ignorance, and the better chance we have of maintaining our home. I definitely think the things that you love, like you were talking about, uh, nature is just something that's literally, you know, in our DNA for, I don't know how many years. And at the core of each person, we can reach that, you know, neuron that we all share um, on this earth. But yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask, because in the beginning, I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about how you picked up different things throughout the phases of your life. 
uh, the same natural event like bird watching. So what do you think or how do you think nature or your, your shift in viewing these natural events has changed um, your perspective on motherhood or even how you understand motherhood and nature and maybe how in understanding that differently, how that helps you exist as an Asian woman, Asian mother outside of the Western um, perception or notions of what motherhood is supposed to be? Gosh, that's such a good, good question. You know, I, I love the question so much, but I also want to preference this because when I was single and I guess we didn't have podcasts that, but when I would listen to interviews or radio, you know, interviews or read about them, I would always feel isolated because I didn't know if I was going to be married. I didn't know if I wanted kids or, you know, that kind of thing. I'd always feel isolated when the parent in question would be like, well, when I became a mother, I noticed this. Or when I had a child, uh, you know, X, Y, Z, as if like other people can't be good and kind and care about the future too. That drove me nuts. So I never want to do that. I know that's not what you're asking, but I want to tell people who are not interested in parenthood that I see you. I've been there. I've heard that. And I don't want to ever come off in that way. What I could tell you from my, just my own personal perspective is that I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think that I was completely changed. Motherhood did change me for sure. But I would like to think, I hope to goodness that my loved ones would say, Amy cared about the planet. She cared about the future. She cared about other people that were different than her before I ever became a mother. So first off, that's who I am as a person. I hope hope to goodness that that's how it comes off. Practically though, having a kid, my heartbeat is on the surface of my body now. <laughs> I know it's a weird macabre image, but my, my vulnerability is at an all time high because I have two kids on this planet and I care for other people's kids too, by the way. So it's not just mine, but I, um, I see kids in a whole different way. I have such a tenderness towards them, not because necessarily they're our future, not because they're a part of me that will live on, none of that stuff, but because simply it is a responsibility, the biggest responsibility I will ever have in my life and the, great, the greatest creative project I will ever have in my life to help shape and mold these two hearts that are now outside of my body to be the most stand-up citizens and kind people, you know, to be on this planet, that they, that they would be the best, best parts of me and my husband. I get choked up thinking about it, but I I just think, you know, nobody, even the worst people on this planet, I won't name names, but the worst leaders on this planet, when they were kids, I'd like to think that their parents have those hopes and dreams for that too, you know, and something went awry, something went awry, like where they started thinking of just themselves or only wanting to make money or something like that. My, my goal, my responsibility is that I, that would be my nightmare. That would be such a personal human failing on my part 
if that ever happened to my children. So I, that means that they, that there's a lot of lessons to give them in such a short amount of time because the world, they will be shaped by this world and this planet too. Um, and, you know, my husband is a white guy from Kansas uh, and they raising, two, I didn't grow up with boys. So I'm trying to give them, I'm trying to give them all the kindness and tenderness and vulnerability of the best version of what it means to be a guy or masculine, to redefine masculinity in, a, in the best way, shape or form, whoever they decide to love, however they decide to represent their, their personhood, I just want them to be good, kind, curious people who think about other people besides themselves. So I guess that's a bigger answer to your, to your question is how has motherhood changed my role in nature? I think uh, on a practical note, there's a lot more at stake. I mean, I like, there's definitely times I've written poems before about animals and plants that are now, before I could even finish the draft of the poem, they, they're now on the endangered list. So that I think I notice a little bit more now, although I was also noticing that when I was a kid, um, how fast animals and plants can become endangered. I think the, the uh, what's at stake now is I want these plants and animals to be around for my kids um, and for other people's kids for that matter, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not, I guess I just wanna deflect off of me and what, how motherhood has changed me except for the fact on the practical terms that there's a weight on my shoulders of wanting, and it's, the, and it's a big joy too. I wanna make that clear to you, that this is not like work. It is work, but it is the, the most creative, joyous work that I will ever have, no matter what book I write in the future, no matter what um, I do with my life, being the mother of these two boys will be the biggest triumph, I hope, um, in, my, in my life if they grow up to be, um, curious kind souls yes the importance of kindness and maintaining your curiosity through uh out your life i mean i think this is one of the big you know the challenge of being a parent but the challenge of um the, the great challenge in life is how do you maintain your curiosity and sense of innocence and wonder through maturity and how do you things happen to you. And as you say, we can become hardened by our experiences, or we can become vulnerable and grow and, and, and still hold fast to kindness and wonder. So yeah, it, it is a big, it's something we all face, but I think that the arts help us through that. And going back to, you know, you know, people speak about it. I don't have children, but people speak about that being transformed by motherhood. Something about the instinct, like the, this instinct to nurture or that we all share and that you've observed through, you know, studying animals. I remember another uh, passage where you describe uh, the monarch butterflies and it's like instinct kicking in the memory of years gone. But why don't you share the story? Because I thought it was so interesting and I just love monarchs and their whole migration oh thank you you know that's why that was um that was when I almost cut because I thought oh you know monarchs everybody I, I was very purposeful in including animals that I thought people would be familiar with with like the monarch and then animals that maybe people didn't have a whole lot of experience with or or know about like 
the axolotl or like the vampire squid or something like that. So I'm very, very glad. I wanted it to be both so that like what you said, Mia, that um, that that kids can learn from it, but also scientists or people who read a lot can still be surprised as well. And, and thankfully that's been the result is that I've had people say that they've read these to their kids or um, people in middle school are reading these. And then also geriatric scientists are also reading this just as a way to unwind from the day. So that's like the best kind of compliment ever. But um, the one little anecdote about but uh, monarch butterflies in uh, Lake Superior in, in um, Minnesota is that uh, for the longest time during just butterfly migration, butterflies would just, uh, instead of just going a straight line across Lake Superior, um, they, they, they go out of their way, they make a little, um, oh, what's the word? I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not using the right terminology, but they, uh, they make a sharp turn um, as they go across the lake and nobody could figure out why, nobody could figure out why until some scientists put it together that there used to be a mountain in the middle of Lake Superior, like thousands of years ago. So I just love that. And again, I'm not a, a scientist, so um, don't come at me in, in my email, you know, I'm just, I, I'm taking the scientific study and putting it in metaphor. I just love that memory that has been able to be passed on in the same way that Birds are able to remember how to fly based on stars, even when it's cloudy, you know, that kind of thing. They find home, you know, there's, there's, it's just that spooky memory that monarchs can remember something from thousands of years ago. So I kind of, kind of made that metaphor to be like, what if, what are the things that we'll remember long after we can't see them? And, and that's kind of motherhood in some ways. I hope, I hope, I hope that the way I conduct my life is something that would make my grandmothers happy and their grandmothers happy, I hope. And uh, that something has passed on that they couldn't even imagine in their wildest dreams in the, in the Philippines or in India, that they would have a great, 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 great granddaughter who was talking via, you know, something called Zoom to a woman in Paris, you know, that um, about their love of nature. And maybe I had a great, great, great grandparent who loved planting things and loved studying birds and insects. And um, so I, I just love that, just to show kind of how we're all connected and that anybody who tries to tell you, well, I did everything myself. I picked myself up from my bootstraps. They should absolutely not be trusted because it's the most unnatural statement to make. We are so connected. Someone gave you that generational wealth or someone gave you the ability to say um, you pulled yourself up by our bootstraps, but we're so connected to all the living things on this earth. Um, it's actually the most unnatural way to be when you say you've done it yourself. Um, that's not natural. All of the rest of nature would disagree with you. And it's not true, actually. It's actually not true. You're just kind of conveniently ignoring all the help you got along the way. Yeah, I think, you know, this sense of collective memory is mm -hmm. something that, you know, we, if we tap into as a society, or as just this large community would really help in our fight against ignorance, um, against climate change. And I wanted to ask if you consider your work, you know, resistance work or activism um, in that way, or have you 
seen that within yourself? Did it take you some time to be able to wrap your mind around, you know, this is my art, but it could also be this? Yeah. It didn't start out purposeful, that's for sure. Again, this is, I feel silly saying it, but any of my childhood friends, would, high school friends would uh, absolutely co-sign this. I have been the person like riding on bikes and then almost falling off my bike because like, look, look at that flower. Or did you see that bird? And later on when I get my license and get a car, my parents' biggest fear is that I would see something pretty because that would mean I would drive off the side of the road. And, you know, I mean, um, I hope I never stop being astonished uh, at the world. And I think having, in hindsight, having had grown up where it's considered dangerous or people actually go out of their way to not show brown people having joy or being happy or being feeling safe outside. Absolutely, you know, Toy Derricot, beloved poet, um, said at a National Book Awards ceremony, joy is an act of resistance, you know, uh, especially when people throughout the years in movie making made it a point. I don't know how else to take it, except that it was purposeful to never show someone who looked like me enjoying themselves, having crushes, um, being safe outside. If I was, if anybody outside remotely looked like me, they were immediately murdered or killed or being chased, you know? So I think it's absolutely resistance to say, hey, we're here, we exist and you can feel safe. You know, you can, you can activate your community to, to make it a point to feel safe and gather up four or five brown women or um, two or three differently able bodies and be outdoors and find strength in numbers because we just haven't seen that represented in so long. So it is, I think, being out there, not, not hiding, not, not taking no for an answer when the publishing world says, which was said to me, we haven't seen a book like this. What, you know, a common question in publishing is like, give me your comps, your, like what books are similar to yours? It was really hard for me to come up with comps because I, not only was there not a book like this, I didn't want to be writing. You know, people said like, oh, so do you think, can this be packaged as the next, Asia, as like an Asian American Thoreau? And I was like, I don't want to be Thoreau at all. You know, like I'm grateful that I've read him, but um, you know, let's not forget Thoreau had his mom do his laundry so that he could go out and, you know, be in nature. You know, that's not the world I want to represent, you know? Um, I want to represent a world where you can be a mother and be brown and be outside and like having kids around and actually enjoy spending time with your husband. None of that has been represented in, in books before to me. Um, so that is a risk. And if I would have stopped the, with the first editor or, or agent who's told me, no, I just don't know how to market this. Um, I, I wouldn't be talking to you right now, you know? So, um, that is resistance in, in believing so hard in what you have to say or what your art is, even if nothing like it exists in the world. And even if you're told no one or 20 times, you know, to keep going. It's true. Just, just being, just staying there and sticking with it is, is resistance. It's, and I was, I was talking to Jenny, Bott. she has, she does the Desi books podcast and is a writer and, uh, 
you know it's strange because either you're not not being represented or sometimes you have just take on the role or a it's called upon us to take on the role of a spokesperson. I remember with my first uh, literary agent, uh, she, but it was a different reason. She said to me, she says, oh, we don't have anyone like you. And it was just, it was, I didn't know, is it a compliment or what? And then, uh, so, it's, so it's strange. Um, the, the different things are expected of us. And to, yeah. to also fulfill, because we, we're talking about this, uh, Jenny goes, about, to fulfill the stereotypes, to fulfill the stereotypes that people already have in their mind. Yeah. So you can't like stray out of that. I don't want to neglect to mention, of course, in uh, your book, the beautiful illustrations, which just which just complements the the very personal way your your nature writing, you know, moves us. Thank you. Yes, um, I want to give a shout out to um, an Asian American uh, illustrator. It was very, very important to me to have an Asian American. I wanted this to be illustrated. And then number two, uh, which a lot of publishers freaked out about. They're like, this, we don't, we don't do this. We, we have never done this. Um, so they were not willing to even do anything outside of their, what they had done already before in the past. And then when I said, not only do I want to illustrate it, but I want to find an Asian American illustrator, Milkweed just didn't even flinch. They were just absolutely, you know, give us some names, give us some names. I found this illustrator on Instagram and I just fell in love with her work. It's so extraordinary. Fumi um, Nakamura, Fumi Muni Nakamura, uh, it's just exquisite, just exquisite. Um, I wanted to find an illustrator who could get everything biologically correct, but with maybe 2% whimsy. And many times, um, you know, when I was looking at portfolios, there was maybe like 98% whimsy, 2% biologically correct. Like people would put eyeballs on plants. And I'm like, no, that's a little too cartoonish. I, want, I wanted people to have that same sense of the vintage science books that I encountered when I was growing up and sitting on the floor of the library where there was usually one color, but you still get to know what this plant or animal is like. And hopefully it piques your interest just enough so that you maybe you go up, go on and look up more about the axolotl or look up more about the vampire squid um, or a dancing frog. Um, so yeah, I just, it, it, I'm so proud that in a book on nature writing, that there's two, not one, but two Asian American author photos now um, in, in the latest edition of this book. So, um, and, and two Asian American, unabashedly Asian American names. There's no mistaking Nakamura and Nezuka Matatil um, on there. And I just love that, that milkweed, my, my press in, in Minnesota, it's a very indie press, didn't flinch. They were willing to, to take that leap of faith. Um, I think they saw and heard my enthusiasm and how much I had hungered for that all my life. I'd been in libraries. I couldn't wait to see, oh, who wrote this volcano book? Oh, white guy. Or who took the pictures for this? White woman. You know, and just, and they were beautiful, talented, talented um, pieces of art or, or authors. But I just never, like, where were the Asian Americans in writing about the outdoors? So I was, I was so pleased to, to know that, um, yeah, people have been wanting t-shirts and book bags and posters of the illustrations. So I, lo I love that so much. 
Well, you definitely have a, a unique vision, and and I really appreciate that. Just to, of course, we we all do appreciate having the uh, Asian American perspective, and. Uh, we haven't discussed too much about climate change, but that with our One Planet podcast, it's something that's on our minds, and I think it should be on everyone's minds. Uh, we're thinking a lot about the future and education, of course, the importance of the arts and the importance of things in society that we'd like to change uh, and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. So as you reflect on these things, um, you know, what, what would you like to change? What were some of the important life lessons uh, that, that remain with you? Um, you know, what do you tell your children who are growing up now? Mm -hmm. You know, it is a scary time. You know, um, we have, I think coming up now, I'm here in Mississippi again, and I think we have a tropical storm coming up. Um, the frequency of tropical storms is increasing. If anybody's watching the news, I just saw earlier this week, it's raining, I think for the first time ever in Greenland. That um, was kind of horrifying. So it is very easy, uh, especially for a um, person who feels things a lot to just want to be in a fetal position and just put sheets over my head and stay in bed all day, you know? Uh, I cannot do that <laughs> with two kids around, around the house. And I just thought, you know, well, two things. Here in the South, there's a saying, you know, you catch more flies with honey, um, you know, meaning, of course, and, I, and there's absolutely, I'm so grateful to the scientists and the scientific writers and the environmental writers who are science-based, who kind of give us the hows and the whys of what's going on to kind of, so that we can understand what's going on and how we can at least slow things down, slow destruction down. That's their specialty. That's their lane. My lane, I'm realizing, is just kind of asking ourselves, what about if we wrote about what we loved that's, a, that's here on this planet? What if we start from a place of celebrating what we have in abundance rather than our lack? And maybe, just maybe, we will want to fight for that abundance. We will want to fight for what's already here and not be lamenting, uh, although of course, absolutely, I'm not saying at all to keep our head in the sand about climate change at all, but maybe there's people, because I know it activates me to want to get to work to save the things that we love rather than like want to get to work because someone has scared me and has put fear in me. You know, some people can do that. I, that's when I tend to, for me personally, I, that's when I tend to shut down. <laughs> like, oh no, it's too overwhelming. I can't. But if I'm like, oh, I can fix this patch of forest that our local community is thinking about cutting down to make a new bank or something. Um, and in that forest, there's a bunch of painted buntings or, um, or titmouse uh, birds, or, um, you know, like just a family of summer tan scarlet tanagers, then I can raise awareness on that, that patch of forest. And maybe just maybe when people read about summer tanagers or painted buntings, they'll realize, oh, they rely on these grubs or these worms that are also there. And that we also, I mean, that we're all connected and we'll want to, that'll affect eventually like what we eat, you know, and things like that. So 
that will activate people to like, hey, I don't want this food supply to be ended. Let's save this little patch of forest. Just some way to connect us into getting up off the couch and working locally so that collectively a bunch of little local activisms can can be this kind of national movement to just being more mindful of what's out there. Um, I think celebrating what, what we have on this planet. And also, as, as you can see from my book, this, this was 30, but I, I had 200 and I could have done 500, you know, um, wonders on this planet. There's so much goodness on this planet. And Margaret Atwood says, the future is not yet written. You know, the future is not yet written. So it definitely looks bleak for sure, for sure. But we don't know yet what is going to happen in the future. So we can, there's a little bit of hope that I have to hold on to. For me, I'm not speaking. I'm not saying it has to be prescriptive for everybody. For me, hope is what activates me to do work. Hope for a better future, hope for a better climate, hope for less frequent, you know, tropical storms, hope for less reliance on natural resources. Um, that activates me. Some people get activated by fear. That's that's not me. Um, so I, I get activated when there's hope that I can actually do something. Yeah, I believe in hope too. And and certainly, I mean, G Gabriella being one of our students, um, yeah, we hear about the climate anxiety that young people are justifiably going through. Mm -hmm. So you have to give yeah, I think love, love unites us, you know, as you say, if you can feel for the outdoors for wilderness, as though it were your backyard, so it were your family, if we could care about animals and nature and the very place that we live in, uh, as though it, it belonged to us in that way, which it does, but doesn't just belong to it to us it belongs to itself uh, that it's a big message it seems small but it's it's a it's a big one and you certainly have been uh throughout all of your books uh very much about beauty and love and hope so thank you amy nezuk matatil for your poetry which reminds us to hold fast to that sense of wonder that we're all born with but some lose along the way and how it reminds us of the beauty of the natural world we all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast. So much, Mia. Thank you so much, Gabriella. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Gabriella Garcia Stolfi. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was also Gabriella Garcia Stolfi. Digital media coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at Thanks for listening.